Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Lily Kate Show. I am so glad you're all here today. As per usual, it is almost Christmas, which means I'm going to be taking two weeks off to enjoy my time with my family, time at Turning Point USA events to get that much-needed rest and relax. But since it's that time of year that you sit and you talk to your family and you think about all the things that you accomplished, all the things you wish you could have accomplished, and all the things that you're proud of of this year. So I want to basically talk about some revelations that I've personally had this year. Well, maybe not revelations, more like thoughts that have really started to make sense to actualize and become super important to me this year. So 2022, this is kind of my ideological recap. This is not necessarily a new idea, but it is something that has become very important and very clear to me in this year regarding free speech because free speech, obviously protected in the First Amendment in the United States uh, Bill of Rights, a lot of times the right and the left, so the right is just as guilty at this too, is we try and call for censorship over bad speech. The left obviously struggles from falling into this sin a whole lot more than the right actually does, but both sides have the tendency to to just want to take the easy man's way out of this argument. They want to try and do the simplest, most effective, the quickest way to quash bad speech or ideas they disagree with or what they would qualify as misinformation. And just to put this out there again, the left and right are both terrible at falling into this trap because again, it is the lazy man's way out of actually having an argument with someone. So what I've realized, and as this is kind of rock ribs, you know, this is a rock rib true conservative position is you can't have free speech without having bad speech, first of all. But second, and this is the most important one, is you cannot fall into the trap of censorship because the only thing that will beat bad speech is good speech. The only thing that will beat bad ideas are actual discussions, actual arguments, actual engagements about those bad ideas so you can figure out what rises to the top and what falls to the bottom. The only way you can beat bad, toxic ideas is through more speech. And I guess really that doesn't necessarily just mean actually talking and engaging with people. That means acting these ideas out, living in this way, living in a way that your values are exemplified through your actions. See, the only way that you can actually beat these bad ideas is not by marginalizing them more. You can mock them. You can laugh at them. You can take them down. You can own the liberal ideas. Absolutely. I'm all for that, but it has to be a battleground and it has to be won in the battleground because it is our job as conservatives to not only conserve things, but to make the case for why we need to conserve those things in the first place. And we haven't been doing a really good job at that, especially in the last 20-ish years in regards to sexuality and anything basically to do with the culture. And, you know, we're starting to get a little bit better. We're starting to actually trickle in and show up at the party, which is, which is a pretty exciting moment for the conservative movement for sure, but we need to be able to articulate why we want to conserve these things and win over people with our message of love, life, uh, excitement, positivity, wholesome tradition, structure, and security. And kind of along with that, I know this is a revelation that we've all been tracking throughout the whole entire year, and I've basically made it my mission to want to take down radical feminism. But seriously, feminism is a movement that wants to destroy any kind of structure in the world. It wants to destroy any kind of hierarchy, any kind of organization, any kind of something that puts people in positions of headship or authority over another person. And this is not just in the context of, say, marriage. This is in the context of the church. This is in the context of any corporation or major company that is being born in the United States. Feminism seeks to destroy all of those and put women 
and install the female nature in the positions that a masculine feature would probably be much better suited as. And so really what I've seen is feminism is not just an, a toxic, insidious cultural idea. It is a genuinely deconstructionalist, humanist, materialist movement that is looking to destroy any kind of hierarchy or order that we have in our society. And that's one of the major reasons why I think feminism is so bad, because kind of on the flip side of that, I didn't think about it as seriously as I have this year. But structure is super important. And I really want to kind of emphasize this for especially people who are young, because if you're anything like me, you've probably grown up already in a structure. You've already grown up with maybe a mom and a dad in a school system that was structured, in a church system that was pretty structured, depending, of course, on your nomination. Uh, denominations vary in their degree of organization and structure, of course, but generally the church has a structure. You've grown up with a lot of hierarchy in your life, and that has provided a lot of security for you. A lot of people, though, have not grown up with that security. And that is one of the reasons this unstable growing up of, I don't know who is above me. I don't know who is below me. I don't know who is supposed to be giving permission to me. I don't know who I should be asking for permission. I don't know who I need to be inspired by. I don't need, I don't know who I'm supposed to look up to, right? A lot of Americans grow up in a very unstable uh, family life or unstable school. Let me just paint this picture for you. More than 60% of ch black children are born without a father in the home, right? That's more than 60% of black children who are growing up thinking that the single mom is the way to be, which is obviously not true. And a lot of those people won't ever meet their dads because of just unfortunately the culture that we have ourselves in. Then the moms, the single moms get overwhelmed, put them in public school because public school is affordable and it seems like it's the only option, right? So they go to public school and the only authorities they have are their teachers, right? But you're passed off to a, a ton of different teachers throughout the day. You're constantly changing teachers throughout the year. You don't ever bond with one teacher specifically, that teacher doesn't know you in all of, say, history and science and English, right? You're constantly getting this just this uh, opening and closing door of these adults that have power over you, right? And these adults have different agendas, different sets of rules, and they haven't known the context of who you are. So there's no personal relationship and really no ability for a personal relationship to have its roots really dug into you through the public school system. And at the same time, you are constantly surrounded by more and more and more people. And not that I'm saying that being surrounded by people constantly and new people all the time is a bad thing, but especially when you're growing up, just plopping someone in a public school setting and just assuming they're going to be well socialized, have respect for authority and actually make friends is a really far-fetched bet because there's no parental involvement anymore. That is one of the sad things about public school is that parents just want to send their kids there and have another woman raise their children while not being involved at all. And this is why we have so many insecure adults today who rely on the government or rely on other people to socialize them, to care for them, to love on them, to give them the security that they want in their lives. And ironically, if you have that structure and are able to create that structure around yourself, then you will be better suited to dealing with harsh ideas. You'll be better suited to figuring out and analyzing the world and then being able to thrive in the world. Because people who grew up with little to no structure in the household, in their public school system, with not a tight-knit community, are going to suffer from that feeling of social insecurity 
productivity for sure, but are also going to struggle with the ability to organize things around them and then break things up into small goals to dream big and accomplish those things. And so that's why we see so many people today, especially in the context of masculinity of people who are timid and afraid and looking for someone to come rescue them. I think obviously that feminism is a force that emasculates men extraordinarily quickly. And I think that we're seeing the dire effects of that today. But truthfully, I have not really thought about the importance of structure because that's just how I grew up. As I'm going out into the world, I see that a lot of people did not have the same security that I had growing up because I live in a two-parent household and I grew up in the church and I grew up homeschooled, right? I'm just going to say that's the superior way to grow up. If that's if you have the option to do those all those things for your children, you absolutely should because they will grow up to be confident and secure. The final thing that I've been really reflecting on this year is obviously, <laughs> I think we all come back to this one constantly, but gratitude, being grateful for not only the things that have been granted to us by God, which is a very religious just kind of way to to insert gratitude into your life but to also be grateful for the small political wins that we do get grateful for this country and grateful for the opportunity to preserve this country gratitude if you have the lack of gratitude it's a very unattractive thing entitlement is one of the ugliest characteristics that a person can display and gratitude is really the only antidote and the, the gateway to being happy and joyful and a good servant and a good fighter. So those are just some things that I've been reflecting on this year, just to reiterate the importance of good free speech and free speech is the only way to quash bad speech and more speech is the only way to quash bad speech rather. And that feminism is a system and an ideology that looks to destroy any kind of structure in society, but structure is one of the most important things for early childhood development relationship building and basically building a functioning human being and finally gratitude is something that we need to look for and apply to the to the political sphere as well as take it from the religious sphere we can't just be grateful for our religion we have to be grateful for the ability to fight for what is right so as the guest today, we have Daisy Davis, who has just changed her last name. And I want to ask her a lot about what her marriage has been like, what some of her wisdom is. I think you guys will be truly blessed by what she has to say. Also, sorry about the audio quality. We had to record on Zoom. Technical difficulties. I'm sure you understand. So, Mrs. Daisy Davis, how are you? Good. How are you? It's so good. I'm so good. It's so good to have you here. Last time I saw you, it was probably at baggage claim in JFK Airport. Is that correct? <laughs> yep. <laughs> we were all super dead that day because we spent a long time in Israel. And that's really the first time where we got to actually talk. And so... Since then, though, you have become a wifey. Tell us what is married life like. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I think people can either overestimate it or underestimate it. Uh, because for Stephen and I, we were not living according to biblical standards all the time. We started living together back in January. And so we're what you would call shacking up. So um, we were not, how do I put this? Because to be completely honest, we knew we weren't living right. And we didn't feel comfortable even talking about marriage or relationships or anything because we felt guilty for the way that we were living. 
So um, eventually what we ended up doing was taking a vow of chastity. And we stuck to that vow of chastity. Oh, man. And um, we kept ourselves pure up until our wedding day. And but honestly, I don't know how, by the grace of God, because we were, were living together. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, there's lots of room for temptation there. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I would typically, I, I probably would have recommended for anyone, like, just move out of the house, you know, move out of the house. <laughs> but he and I live in the middle of nowhere. I have no family within an hour and a half. Mm. Um, I mean, I have friends, but I, it was just it didn't add up for us. And so we decided to keep ourselves pure in that regard. And I tell you what, with that aspect being considered, not much changed other than being able to be intimate with my partner and right with God. Uh, Otherwise, I was still taking care of him. I'm still feeding him. I'm still doing the dishes. I'm still doing the laundry. I'm still doing the cleaning. I'm still being the housekeeper and the homekeeper <laughs> and all of that. But given the full picture, that is how married life is now. That mm. we have been so, so, God has made it so incredibly clear how pleased he was with, or how pleased he is with us for taking the time to, tr to take that vow and mm. do it his way. And honestly, it's amazing. That's so precious. And it's been just over a month now. Is that correct? Yes. Like a month and three days. Oh my gosh. And, so was your wedding four hours? There you go. <laughs> was your wedding just everything you ever wanted? I, I don't even know how to describe it. Okay. Other than that, this was one of the things that came along with our vow of chastity. Um, we believe, we feel like God just I mean, just showered blessing after blessing after blessing because we could not afford this wedding. Hmm. And it's funny. It's funny because I Google searched. I was curious. I was like, what are the world's standards of marriage? Like, you know, so I Google searched, how do I know I'm ready to get married? And it was like, be financially stable. Mm -hmm. uh, don't get married under 25, but preferably over 28 and make sure you can afford a wedding. And all three of these things I have literally disproven in scripture. Oh my like, gosh. Where in the world did we get this idea? You have to be financially stable to get married, yeah. build your empire together. I mean, yeah. Okay. You don't, as a man, who's going to be a provider, you don't want some, some guy who like, <laughs> is living under a bridge. Okay. Yeah. That's, you know, understandable, but no, you do not have to be quote unquote financially stable and be able to afford a wedding. And I think that's one of the ways that, that the world has, or whatever, Satan, that mm -hmm. I think that's one of the ways Satan has kind of even more so edged marriage out of the picture for people's because weddings have become so unaffordable now. So now, even if you are financially stable, can you afford a wedding? Wow. Our budget was $5,500. <gasps> wow. And our wedding looked like a $15,000 wedding or more. I would say $20,000 wedding. Oh my we gosh. Had people, we had people volunteer their services. We had people um, charging us one price, finding out our story and then charging us nothing like hundreds of dollars for free. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't even 
begin to describe how much people came together people that we have never met people who didn't care that it, it, they weren't doing it because steven is a social media whatever it like they, they were it was people who were like who's who's maga hulk like god just put this in their hearts come on and it was just so amazing the day was beautiful there were random little mishaps of course but ultimately i was like i this was the best day of my life i got to marry my best friend and i could not be happier so 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 precious and you know so far into like say being married, I know you have a little bit of a different kind of situation leading into it, but say from the time that you like moved in with Steven and you guys were living together and then combined with you being married, what have you like learned about yourself? Cause I feel like, you know, the first couple of years is really the time where you get a lot revealed to yourself. And so as someone who is unmarried, um, planning on being someday, hopefully soon, <laughs> and oh, oh. you know we'll see we'll see um but like you know I feel like there's so much that you learn about yourself and you grow so much as a person so if you could just shower wisdom on us what would that <laughs> sound like huh. okay I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that if ever we are fighting it is because someone is hurt it is very rare you're ever going to fight. Okay, if, especially if this is someone that you love and you're, you and your spouse are deeply in love with each other, okay? It's very rare you're going to find someone who's fighting just because they're like looking at you going, I just feel like fighting. Mm. You annoy me, I feel like fighting. Nine times out of 10, when you love each other, you're fighting because either someone feels disrespected, someone feels unloved, or someone feels ashamed or hurt or let down there is pain behind the fight Hmm. and so I think that is one of the biggest things I have learned about myself is that too when I when we're upset with each other and when we're arguing take a step back Hmm. and just breathe for a moment because in the moment I mean I passionate love comes with passionate anger and so there are times where (laughs) You know, our, our mentors are Victor and Eileen Marks, and they said yes. divorce is not a word. Divorce is not a word in your marriage, but murder mm-hmm. is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are times when I have wanted to murder Stephen slowly. <laughs> but when you take a step back and just understand, okay, he actually feels really hurt by this, even if I didn't mean it that way even if this is coming from a a place of past trauma or Mm. past experiences, maybe it has nothing to do with me, but somehow I triggered something from his past. I need to take a step back and calm down because my, my partner, my spouse, this person that I love is in pain. And Mm. that has diffused so many situations for me. Wow. I mean, that's so much knowledge there. And I feel like, like going back to the divorce is not a word thing. I almost feel like divorce is, is very similar to abortion, right? It's an easy way out. It's a quick fix of a problem that you're having. And so it's almost like, I mean, you know, not to be cliche, but you're aborting a marriage. And so it's so important because just like in the situation of an unplanned pregnancy and in the situation when you're maybe 
angry at your spouse, et cetera, it does come from a place of hurt. It comes from a place of uncertainty, insecurity, uh, you know, name any negative emotion. It comes from that place. So it's just really interesting that the left is always pushing these things that are, that are necessarily bad for society and will only lead to more hurt. You never hear someone say like, oh, I'm so glad I got my divorce. Like my life is so much better for it. I feel so light. I mean, you probably hear some people say that they had someone real toxic, but you know, generally it just leads to more hurt and more uh, destabilization in our society generally. And so I wanted to get your just wisdom and opinion on like, why is marriage so important for society? Conservatives always go around saying, oh, marriage is so good. It's so important. It's a fundamental building block. It's the fundamental political institution. But I feel like there's something deeper there that we have yet to explore on the Lily Kate show. Well, I mean, this is something that I've considered deeply because I've now being married myself, I want to learn to not just value marriage because it's, I I've always valued marriage. My parents have been married for 30 plus years. They've got 10 children, yes. Never cheating scandals or, I mean, a wonderful parents, wonderful relationship. I've had great examples in my life. So I've always valued marriage, but I have real I realized I've never looked at it like it's this um this holy very sanctified thing mm -hmm. that really you you should place upon a pedestal and so I was actually studying it out and I realized no and I actually also got this from my mentor because my mentor Eileen she talks about this how no other relationship is meant to last a lifetime. We are, we, we come into the world knowing one day we're going to lose our parents, mm. knowing that we are going to separate from our siblings. We're going to move out of the house. We're going to no longer be side by side with each other and, and whatnot. But <clears throat> marriage is the only one, even with my child, my child, I know my child's going to move out and move on, but my marriage is to never, ever mm. be, be taken away unless it's, it's by literally till death do us part. Yeah. And when I researched it a little bit more in the Bible, I realized that, you know, that the scriptures that say like, um, let a, a man will be one with his wife mm -hmm. or, or they will come together and they will be one. Wait, be you know, one only, flesh. There are only two other instances that I've found, at least, you can correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> there's only two other instances where things are considered to be one, and mm -hmm. that is God, the Father, God, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, those three are as one, mm -hmm. and then Christ and the church are as one. Uh, those are the only scriptures I have found that speak of something being as one. So what that's telling me is that this union is as important as, as Christ is to the church. Mm -hmm. This union is as important as God was to Christ and as Christ was to the Holy Spirit and all three of them working together as one. This union is as important as salvation. Like wow. that is how much God esteems this union. And so I mean, that was just like mind blowing to me that no other instance am I called to be one with something. Wow. And I don't know. I just, I think that's, I, sorry. I mean, kind of 
off there a little bit, but I think that's part of the re- uh, part of the way that we're going off even is that we fail to realize the sanctity of marriage. Mm -hmm. And, and there is so much as important as marriage is, if God has made marriage that important, then there is so much more that goes into it in society than we ever realize. marriage, even the way the church works. Okay. So in the church, we, we have order. We have God, the father, God, the son, the Holy spirit, the brethren, there's like an order to things. There's a hierarchy. Okay. So we all worship God, but same thing in a, in a marriage. Okay. We have a hierarchy of things. So we, you know, we have God and then we have, uh, so basically church, God, spirituality, then the husband, then the wife, than the children. Okay. So there's a hierarchy here. Totally. And one thing that I love about marriage is that in a marriage, it solidifies gender roles. <laughs> so unpopular gender, to say. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And gender roles are defined by our chemical makeup. So not only is this, this, this is not just a social construct. This is a scientific construct. Mm. There is literal science behind marriage there's literal science behind the role a man plays literal science behind the role a woman plays wow and so i think that's part of the reason why marriage is such an important construct to society crazy let's explore that a little more because you know people it's interesting because we're in this really cool phase in in world history right now we're actually science is catching up with the bible right they're talking about, say, what happens to a person when their soul leaves their body after they die, right? Something physical, like literally leaves. There's a flash of light at conception, right? Science is finally realizing they're like, wow, it's almost like <laughs> there's a mastermind creator kind of putting this all into motion, right? But they would never admit that, of course. So what do you mean when you say, you know, for someone who, say, hates gender roles, hates marriage, but trusts the science, what would you say to them about the science of marriage? For starters, what one thing that I love doing is comparing science to scripture. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for starters, Proverbs, um, oh, let me see. I was just studying it. Proverbs 5, 8, 18 through 20. Okay. This is three different scriptures. It the and I'm quoting them off the top sure, of my head. Sure, so sure, sure. Not gonna be verbatim. But basically it says, enjoy the wife of your youth. The second one says, be ravished with her physically. Mm-hmm. And the third one, the third one says, basically, because why would you want to be ravished with a stranger? Why would you want to rest your head on a stranger's bosom? Okay. And here's the thing, even something so simple <clears throat> as being monogamous, as having one partner, there's science behind it. Scientific studies have shown that the the hormones that are released in our body when we have one partner mm-hmm. are, are, they build each other up and, and they increase our immune system. And we have stronger, you know, uh, we've got stronger immune systems. We've got better mental health. Uh, people who well, are- We're less health. lonely too, because loneliness is a huge killer. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the thing is, I mean, even if we're just doing social studies, like, like, social experiments and whatnot social experiments have shown that people who are in one stable relationship 
have better heart health. They have better mental health. They have better um, physical health in general. <laughs> right. I mean, there is literal science behind this particular aspect of monogamy. Okay. Aside from that, we can go into the chemical makeup of a man versus the chemical makeup of a woman. That it is absolutely the truth when they say we think differently. You can have an effeminate man and yep. you can have a masculine woman. But of course, that's and- behavior. That's not what their gender is. <laughs> yes. yes. And you can have a woman who might be, uh, she might struggle a little more with being compassionate, but usually that's not due to her chemical makeup. That's more so due to what her experiences were as a child. Mm. So yeah, if you have a woman who was severely neglected as a child, she's going to have a hard time naturally embracing that maternal instinct of love and compassion for her own children. Okay. So that's something totally separate, but naturally nine times out of 10, 90% of the time, a woman is going to have a natural inclination to be loving, to be gentle, to be softer, to be sweeter, to be more compassionate. Whereas a man comes at something from more of a logical standpoint, whereas he's kind of almost chopping numbers which trying to solve the problem exactly and you know what a problem is it's a problem to support your family it's Mm -hmm. a problem to have to provide a house for them it's a problem to have to provide food and shelter for them that is why a man's mind works that way because naturally he is the provider the protector the supplier the i mean he he is naturally to fulfill that role women are naturally more emotional because we fulfill a more emotional role. Yeah. Okay, so we're comforters, we're gentle, we're compassionate, we're loving, and we balance each other out perfectly yes. because that is the role we were meant to play. So, I mean, like, uh, you're a better scientist than half the health uh, health experts that we actually have. Um, I, got, I got to just mention something real quick because you brought up the scientific, like, reason for why a woman should have one partner. And it's really important because I was in Delaware this past weekend and I was doing an event and we had a debate and then we opened it up to Q and a, well, of course the left heard about this and they showed up with about 80 protesters. Okay. So they all storm. Oh, it was crazy. Police escort the whole nine yards and everything. Um, it was super fun. I gotta say it was super fun, but we started talking about hookup culture in the Q&A section. Of course, they were standing, you know, standing room only in the room. They were yelling. They had signs like, you know, middle fingering us the whole way. It was it was literally like a video you'd see on Turning Point USA. Oh, my goodness. So I started talking about I was like, yeah, this is why scientifically hookup culture is bad for women. And of course, it was just this dude and I sitting there just like owning the libs as much as we could. And I tell you, I said, look, women today are like Voldemort. What do I mean by that? And they were all sneering and mocking me and laughing. And I was like, because Voldemort's soul is split into like seven different places. And basically through the whole series, his job is to go and find the pieces of his soul and put them all together so he could be powerful. And I'm like, the opposite thing happens to a woman whenever she sexually active with multiple people part of her soul is left and what part of the her soul does it mean you know we've all heard soul ties but really what soul ties are is a release of oxytocin whenever a woman you know has sexual relations and that oxytocin is triggered and gets addicted to a certain person right their voice 
the way they feel, the way they smell, uh, the way that like, yeah, the way that your like, I don't know, your body just kind of responds to them because women were very like physical beings. I think the female body is like just the coolest thing ever. Um, And of course, you know, like while I was saying this, the liberals literally were like sneering and like literally like laughing and just like trying to mock me and I was like no I'm like I'm serious about this science is finally catching up to why hookup culture is so bad for women our souls get split between so many people and there's no way for us to get them back unlike Lord Voldemort (laughs) and uh you know it's just super interesting that you know the left of course is wanting to promote hookup culture but finally the science trust the science is taking a different route Wow, that is a fantastic point. I never even thought about it like that. <laughs> it's because uh, uh, my boyfriend wanted to watch Harry Potter over the summer, so I had to spend my time thinking of something useful <laughs> out of it. <laughs> but um, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were in Israel, like I opened up saying. Um, so kind of switching, switching the narrative a little bit. We were in Israel and it was so biblically enriching. I, you know, you and I, we both read the Bible and we could go through the gospels now and be like, oh, I've been there. I've been there. Ooh, oh I know what that place looks like. Like it was just so amazing. And so if you had, obviously there's so much, but one thing that audiences could hear about Israel and how you related to it as a Christian. I have to say Capernaum. Capernaum is just something that I feel like just flipped my soul. <laughs> I mean, literally, I just, it's something so hard to explain. I close my eyes and I feel like I'm back on that. Yeah. And it's, there's, I'm a very visual person. Okay. So for me to be standing on the beach, I will by the sea, by the edge of the, right. I don't know what it's called. Sea of Galilee, but everything's upgraded because it's the Holy Land, like David would always tell us. There you go. I don't know if it's considered a beach or what, but basically I'm standing by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, I'm I'm standing on Capernaum, looking out over the Sea of Galilee Mm. and knowing that my Savior walked right here. He most likely saw the same shapes of the mountains that I see. He, I I mean, I'm sure with time they change, but you know, it's like, these are the waters that he walked on and that he stepped into the boats and, and he met the people that are local to here and, and communicated with them. He spoke in this general vicinity. And I read through the passage of him in Capernaum while I was there. And the thing that struck me the most is that in Capernaum is where, I believe Capernaum is where they were first called Christians. I think, I think you're right. Cause that was where not only did he feed or I don't, did he feed the 5,000 there or somewhere near, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but that's the first place that the great commission was given where he said from here, yeah go out everywhere so it it might be okay so Capernaum is pretty much where it all starts Mm -hmm. but it's also where things took a very bad turn Mm -hmm. because Capernaum is also where 
he was teaching them about riches and how it's easier for a camel to sit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And it says his disciples looked at him and said, this is a hard saying to hear. And he lost many disciples that day. That's what the scriptures say. So here in Capernaum, I am literally standing on the land where people had two options and some chose to follow him and not much time went by before the very people who chose to follow him in Capernaum turned around and walked away. Hmm. And it made me wonder what would I have done if I was, if I was sitting on this beach right now and Christ is right there talking to me and, and he's, I I'm hearing his voice drift down to me through you know, the, the waves and the wind and stuff, but you know, God is carrying his voice to my ears and I hear him say these things that he's teaching. And and I have the chance to either follow him or be one of the ones who walks away. Mm. Like, I don't know. It just smote my heart. It just smote my heart that I'm standing in the place where these two very drastically different scenarios took place. Right. And it, it made me think. Wow. And then one other thing I took away is that not so much, I mean, it's, it's partially spiritual, but a little bit of a mixture of spiritual and political. Yeah. Because I'm hearing all this stuff about pro-Zionist, pro-Zionist, you know, oh, oh we're Zionist, we're Zionist, we're Zionist. <clears throat> I am pro-Israel. I am not a Zionist. Hmm. And I think it's, uh, for me, I think I find it very important to differentiate between the two. I do not believe that Jews have a right to Israel. Interesting. I think, I think conquered land is conquered land. That's like, that's like Cherokees coming to me and saying, I have a right to America because this was my land. So no, I, I believe conquered land is conquered land. I do not believe they are any more of the chosen people of God. Mm. I don't. I believe that Jews were the chosen people of God. I believe that according to the New Testament, I believe it's in Hebrews, where it says the Old Testament was nailed to the Christ to the cross with Christ. I believe that the Jews were the chosen people. That doctrine was nailed to the cross with Christ and died and resurrected a new chosen people which is anyone drafted in yes and exactly anyone who's drafted in and so that's something that i feel like is really important to specify i'm very pro-israel because they are the peaceful side because oh right totally like oh no doubt freedom and democracy yeah freedom of religion let's do it oh yeah so very pro-israel but i am not a zionist that is so interesting because actually, like I mentioned, we were at a debate earlier. That was the topic of the debate. I was challenged while I was in Israel to do this debate, and it was about do Christians have an obligation to support Israel? And the case that I made is you don't have to, as a Christian, you're not obligated to support Israel for any, say, racial reasons, for any ethnic reasons, for, you know, geopolitics. The argument that I made is you have an, you have an obligation to protect Israel from the Muslims who are trying to destroy it, first of all, but also it would be great if, you know, I, I guess the question is what gives someone the right to the land, right? 
And in our modern day culture, since there's no more land to be conquered, it pretty much is chalked up to you convince other people, you, you have the land, right? You convince other people to give you the land, say in the case of Israel after World War II, everyone was kind of like, yeah, you can have your land back. We're sorry, right? And you defend the land well. That's what gives you the right per se to the land, not because of your heritage that was there. So it's just yes. super interesting because- you know, you and I, as Christians, we want the whole world to be Christian. So therefore the birthplace of our faith and the history, not only leading up to it, but the history where the gospels happen, I'll never forget standing on the sea of Galilee, arms stretched out to either side. Um, he says 90% of the gospel happened between where your arms are stretched, like so powerful, right? That more of our faith happened there than the faith of the Jews, right? And so it's just so interesting because I truly do believe that Christians should want to reclaim Israel for Christianity. Now, it's super unpopular to say I understand it because of everything that the Jewish people have been through, but this is our religion and they rejected Christ. And I know on the general spectrum of all the religions in the world, we are technically similar, but just because we have Jesus, we are so fundamentally different, right? Yeah. And just because we share a history, I think that's great. And I think that we need to work with the Jewish people, with private donors, with the government as much as we can to preserve our shared history. But again, as a Christian, we should want to claim that land for the Christian faith. So I know it's very unpopular to say, but I think really that's the conclusion I came to as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say I ever so slightly differ there because I think one thing that I saw out there a lot with the Jude, with Judaism in general, one thing I saw a lot of is placing too much emphasis on holy land. Hmm. When I think that, let's say we did, let's say we did reclaim Israel as a, a Christian territory, okay? I think that we would have a lot of people who probably wouldn't have the heart you have. Your heart is one to evangelize. So yes, yeah, same for me. <clears throat> My desire would be to absolutely evangelize all of Israel into Christianity sure, and sure. then technically it would be considered Christian land technically but ultimately our hearts and our goals are to evangelize and and spread Christianity but I think naturally as humans there's a lot of people out there who would come to fall into idolatry yeah I think because that's what we saw even at um the, the wailing wall right this so real idol and and it's, it's incredible because God's problem over and over and over with the Jews of the Old Testament was idolatry. They would fall into idolatry. They would fall into idolatry. And here we are again, modern day Jews, yet again, are completely fallen into idolatry. Mm. Everything is, is very... Uh, it's idolatry of the law and the land, really. Yes. Yes. Wow. The wrong things are considered holy. And so, I mean, I probably wouldn't quite word it as conquer it as Christian land. Sure, sure. I would, I would more so conquer it in an evangelizing way. That's probably how I would, I would, uh, want to 
preach it if I were to if I were to like debate that with somebody yeah yeah that's what I would say just for the record I'm not interested in another crusade I think because my conclusion for our debate actually was Christians we should see Israel as just a land for mission work and that we need to really like we really need to get on that so just just for the record I'm not a crusader That's all we need. That's all we need. The left to just take a little clip and just run with it. Lily Kate is a crusader. <laughs> That'd be so a new crusader. one. That'd be a new one that they called me for sure. Oh, there you go. That'd be fun. Um, and so, you know, everything that's coming out of Ukraine right now with Vladimir Zelensky shutting down churches and we're, you know, in Canada over, I think 2021, just the summer of 2021, almost 78 churches were either shut down, uh, shut down because of arson or burning or closed down because of vandalism. And so, you know, our culture is getting increasingly hostile to Christianity. Even for example, uh, Kirk Cameron recently, right? I've, this story has been everywhere that his new faith-based book with uh, the publisher Brave Books is like, as we grow or as you grow, right? That book is refused from over 50 public libraries because they don't agree with the values. And all it talks about his children's, it's a children's book, like literally, it's probably like 15 pages long, talks about the fruits of the spirit. But these public libraries don't want that, but they're okay with drag queen story hour where men are dressed up as Satanist women reading sexually exploitive material to little children. And so doesn't take much to paint the picture of our culture is increasingly hostile to Christianity. And so kind of you and I are in this very similar, like we're blending politics and faith constantly because you, you just can't see them apart from each other. So how can we navigate politics and also like our relationships with people through the Christian faith in an increasingly hostile uh, culture? <clears throat> One scripture that I really love, um, I always forget the book. It might be in Jude, but it says, some you save with love mm-hmm. and some you save with fear. And I think I, I work with like 600 teenagers right mm-hmm. now. My job allows me to work in close contact with 600 students. And um, when I started working there, and I saw their spirits and I saw their hearts. One of the first things that I did was I went to my social media and I deleted every single post that I made mocking or, or making light of um, uh, LGBTQ. For me, the, for the longest time, the way that I handled my indifference towards this sinful lifestyle was to put something ridiculous out there that one person from the LGBTQ is doing, or maybe a very small percentage of like maybe 1% of the existing LGBTQ community does this crazy behavior where the rest are people who are most likely were abused as a child, Mm. are just confused sexually, have immoral sexual preferences because, and unnatural sexual preferences because of the trauma they have not healed from, Mm. it made me realize that I am making a mockery of things that people truly believe to be truth. And that is not, I'm going to convert them. I've, I, one of the ways, one of the things that I've had to learn is in the midst 
of my political my political beliefs and my religious beliefs i need to figure out how to meet in the middle and be able to actually connect with someone and i'm not going to be able to connect with them by mocking them by mm. laughing at them by making them feel stupid one of the ways that i'm going to connect with them is by sitting down looking them eye to eye and making sure that they know i love you i don't agree with your lifestyle and i will tell you right now I think you're going to hell. In fact, I can prove your lifestyle will take you to hell. Mm. But that does not mean I don't love you. And that's one thing that I've learned, even with the kids that I work with, is they are broken. They are crying out for love. And I have developed such a strong bond with many LGBTQ students Mm. because I have shown them love. And ultimately, that is what they're looking for. And so I think one of the things we really need to consider is what we're doing here is ultimately evangelizing. My ultimate goal, I honestly, my ultimate goal is not to get them to vote a certain way. My ultimate goal is to commit to convert them to Christianity. Mm. And in Christianity, that will shape the, the direction that they vote because right. you, know, you, you cannot be a Christian <laughs> and be a liberal. You just can't. So I think that people um, have to judge their, the people that they're working with and the relationships that they have and the route that they feel is best. Some you save with love, some you save with fear. All right. Some we need to build a relationship with other people. You can talk statistics with them. Mm. You have to learn your, the, the person you're trying to convert and figure out, okay, how do I connect with them? Are they someone I can connect with in politics or in religion? Because ultimately I want to steer them towards religion. But if they're totally anti-religion, well, then let me connect with you scientifically and Mm. statistically on politics. And from there, I'll guide you towards religion. And then religion will work wonderful and amazing things on you. Oh my gosh. I mean, first of all, I'm like so convicted right now. I'm like thinking about all of the posts that you deleted that you're describing my whole account. So I'm super convicted. The other thing though, is you got to know your audience, right? You're exactly right. And it's interesting because when Paul, I think it it acts like 21 or 24, because somewhere in between there, he's in Greece. And basically the saying in Greece was, it was so open-minded there that they would believe that there was any God everywhere, right? Paul spent like three months or something or longer um, learning about these people and learning who these gods were. They said it was easier. The saying was at least it was easier to find a God than to find a man because there's statues and relics everywhere. So then of course they have this one God that's like, Oh, this God is unnamed. Then Paul is like, I can tell you who this unnamed God is and evangelizes. He's up on this big rock. It's such an awesome scene. And he like evangelizes to them and all of them instantly start believing, denounce all the other gods. And he's just converted, you know, a whole mass conversion in just one time because he spent the time to research and to truly know his audience and knew what they were looking for. And I think that's so, I mean, obviously it's so biblical what you're doing, but it's also just so beautiful. It's so good. And, um, I wish I could be one of those 600 students because it'd be fun to hang out with you more. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. Honestly, honestly, what I do right now is a very different job than I've ever done. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been leasing agent. I've been a physical therapist assistant. 
<clears throat> I've, I've had many great and wonderful jobs. And what I am right now is a janitor. <gasps> I am a janitor at a high school. Wow. And I have to say, I, I, it brings me to tears. This is the best job I have ever had in my life. And what's funny is originally I got it. So I was like, ah, you know, let me get a city job because they'll have good insurance. And I know once I get married, I'm going to have babies and I want good insurance. <laughs> so I was like, so let me just get whatever will come my way and I'll work it for a couple months. And then, I mean, God just, he, he showed me, no, this is where you need to be. This is uh, your calling. So now I'm the, I'm, I'm an assistant coach on our wrestling team. Um, and it has completely flipped my life upside down. Um, I love these kids so much. Like today I went to one of their, um, music rehearsals and I'm literally crying. I'm in tears. <laughs> Because I, I just feel so proud of them and I love them so much. But it's like, I just, I want to tell people you can minister anywhere. Oh, real. What, what a horrible job is this to be a janitor? I'm cleaning throw up and today I'm wiping up bloody noses on the basketball <laughs> court and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But I turn around and I can look at a child who, want, who comes to me and says, hey, um, I, I'm having a rough day today. And I can give them a piece of candy and I can say, hey, God's got you. Mm. Or yeah, I, I, well, I gotta be very careful because I can't really, I have to be very cautious with mixing anything religious or political at work sure. or whatever. But just to even show them, like, I wanna be able, basically what I wanna tell people is you can minister anywhere. You can minister from, taking the garbage out you can minister from cleaning someone's throw up and blood up off a basketball court you can minister if you open your heart up to it oh my gosh if this isn't like fulfilling the stacking treasures in heaven then for you I mean I seriously I don't know what is I'm tempted to quit everything I'm doing and just become a missionary because you are so powerful and uh man I can't wait to go overseas again with you and uh Gosh, anything, anything last you feel like saying? Honestly, that's it. Uh, all, all of this came about when I opened my heart up um, and, and just prayed that God would give me a chance to minister to people. Like <clears throat> someone who believed in me, looked at me and said, you have a purpose. You are here to evangelize. And as long as you open up your heart to evangelism, God will let everything else fall into place. And sure enough, I mean, I just, I opened my heart up to it and he put it all into place. This isn't me. Oh, let me humble myself and let me go be a, a humble janitor so that I can minister to the children. No, I don't <laughs> want to be a janitor. I don't want, like, this is, it took me a long time to ever, people would say, so what are you doing for work? And I'd be like, I, uh, school, school? Like, you know, yeah. I was ashamed of it and God had to work with my heart and teach me that this is beautiful. Uh, and, yeah. and so I think that's just the biggest thing that if I can impart on anyone watching this podcast right now, open your heart up to it, open your heart up to ministering, open your heart up to evangelizing because somehow, some way God will 
put something in your lap where you can change a life, which in turn can change the world. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Lily Kate. I've really, really enjoyed it. (laughs) 